Hello, friends of 2019. My name is No Kairos, your guy from the future, the year 2053 to be precise. I'm able to send recordings to you in your time because of advances in quantum sciences. Like other scientific advances, this technology can be used to bless or curse the lives of those it touches. These next two episodes are going to be difficult and emotional for me to discuss. Both of these events, the Cascadia earthquake and the Grom epidemic, have touched me personally. Not in the sense of watching the news and thinking, oh, that sucks, I'm sad for those people. No, these two events caused agonizing suffering and death for many of my family members, colleagues, and dear friends. Most of those who survived were hollowed out mentally and were disproportionately hit by the Grom epidemic that followed. In my previous recording, I talked about the Kairos device and Kairos network. One of the most concerning aspects of that technology is the tendency of its users to opt out of real life, to take residency in a lounge works facility and piss the rest of their lives away in virtual bliss. After these next two episodes, I think you'll better be able to understand why people have chosen to go into permanent Kairos immersion. These two events left a large amount of scar tissue that's been a heavy burden to bear. These two events were also major influences in founding the nation of Villarica, where I now reside. The U.S. government's gross negligence in addressing the crises themselves was pretty damn bad. And as the problems compounded, it became evident that the government had no interest in preserving the well-being or freedom of its citizens. So throughout these next two episodes, if I sound overly emotional and bitter, believe me, I'm going to try not to, but... I guess I still am. Everybody that was alive at that time still is. So anyway, let's talk about the Cascadia earthquake. Okay, to start off, as I was putting my thoughts together for this recording, I decided to look at the information available in your time on earthquake and tsunami risks in the Northwest. There was a ton of information out there. Your scientists seem to have a good handle on the situation and the risks and I see evidence that they've communicated those risks quite clearly to those in power, but surprise, surprise, not much is being done in your time to prepare. Sure, they've done the small things. It looks like you have tsunami evacuation routes, and there are drills that kids do in schools, things like that, but the idiot politicians seem to be loosening up building restrictions in risky areas to accommodate growth in the coastal areas and the big cities of Oregon and Washington. If you live in coastal areas in the western United States and Canada, anywhere between, say, Mendocino, California, and the north tip of Vancouver Island in British Columbia, you are definitely at risk. And if you live in any of these states, or even in bordering states, you're going to see and experience some serious shit. But as usual, I'm getting ahead of myself. This communication thread could be severed at any time, so I feel some sense of urgency Suffice it to say, if you live on the coast or within 50 miles of the coast, anywhere in Northern California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, make preparations now. If you live in an older or taller building, move. If you live in a tsunami hazard zone, move. Ideally, at least 200 feet above sea level. If you live in any of these states or provinces, you should obtain some basic emergency supplies for your families. Load those supplies in backpacks and store them somewhere accessible. It would also be a great idea to invest in some rugged, comfortable footwear and outdoor clothing. You'll likely be taking a long walk. Oh, and if you're disabled 
or unable to walk very far, I suggest you move out of the Northwest now. Final note before I dive in, consider arming yourself. Yeah, buy a gun. Uh, you live in a relatively peaceful time right now, so that suggestion may seem barbaric. But I'll tell you what, let me recount what happened and then you can decide what's best for you and your family. So if you have access to a map application, open it up, switch to satellite view and take a look at the Northwest United States. You'll notice that there's a big belt of green that extends 100 miles, 150 miles inland, all the way from the northern U.S. border down through Southern California. This belt of green contains some of the most beautiful and fertile land in the world. If you live in the United States, a lot of the fruits, vegetables, nuts, wine, dairy products, anything you would eat, chances are it, it uh, comes from this area. Now zoom a little bit more and take a closer look at Northern California, Oregon, and Washington. Rugged, mountainous coastlines filled with Sitka spruce, redwoods, small towns, and windy roads. Further inland, you'll see long, flat valleys containing the cities of Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, Salem, Eugene. Most of the population lives in these areas, and much of the agri agriculture occurs there as well. And as you move east on the green belt, zoom in a little bit more and you'll start to notice a series of white dots on the eastern boundary of the green belt. Zoom in just south of Seattle and you'll notice a triangle of white dots. That's Mount Rainier at the top of the triangle. Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams are the other two points. Those are active volcanoes. Uh, some of you may have been around when Saint, uh, Mount St. Helens blew its top in 1980. As you move south down the green belt, you'll notice other volcanoes, Mount Hood, Mount Jefferson, Mount Mazuma, which is now Crater Lake, and several others leading down to Mount Shasta in Northern California. On a side note, as I've mentioned, I currently live in a country called Villarica, which would be located in central Chile on your map. Roll your satellite view down to the west coast of South America and take a look. Starting just below Santiago, Chile, you'll notice a familiar looking green belt with a central valley that gives way to mountains and a line of volcanoes. Our country was hit by major earthquakes in 1960 and 2010. Of course, we weren't living here then, but there are a few elderly people still living in my time that remember both events. Their stories are very similar to those of us who experienced and survived Cascadia. Anyway, the point of this geography lesson is to illustrate that the western boundaries of the American continent continents are extremely active geologically. This zone of geologic activity spans northward and westward across the Pacific from Alaska, Russia, Japan, and around through Malaysia, Indonesia, and Australia. So last map exercise here, scroll back up to the Northwest US. This time, if your map shows the contours of the seafloor, take a look at the coast off Oregon and Washington you'll notice a feature that looks like a big L at first glance. As you take a closer look, it appears more like a couple of stairs or teeth on a saw. The west side of the L is the Pacific Plate. The right side of the L is the Juan de Fuca and Gorda Plate, uh, plates which are the surviving remnants of another plate that's been pushed under the North America Plate by the Pacific Plate. This left to right movement of one plate under the another is the force that created the coastal mountain ranges, and the line of volcanoes. Earthquakes are happening constantly in this area, but major eruptions occur roughly every 250 years. 
Before the modern event, the last major earthquake occurred in the year 1700, which, which puts you in 2019 about 70 years overdue. The only written record we have of the 1700 earthquake is from Japan, which recorded an orphan tsunami on the evening of January 26, 1700. The Japanese were used to earthquakes and tsunamis and were surprised that no earthquake preceded that particular tsunami event. This date correspond, uh, it corresponds to word of mouth history from Native Americans and analysis of tree rings and ghost forests which were pushed out into the sea during that earthquake. And that's what happens when an earthquake occurs in this area. The heavier North American plate resists the pressure being applied by the Pacific and the Juan de Fuca plates. When some, something fractures or gives way, pressure is relieved and the coastal areas of the west coast are thrust further westward, usually right into an incoming wall of water. Uh, which brings us to one particularly beautiful fall afternoon in the northwest. Fall and winter bring a lot of rain to places like Portland and Seattle. So on this afternoon, there are a lot of people outdoors soaking up what might be their last dose of sunlight for a while. Uh, one of my neighbors here in Biarica was living in Portland at the time and had taken his dog, uh, a big friendly bull mastiff, out for a walk by the river. He had paused to let his dog get acquainted with a young German Shepherd and was chatting with its owners when both dogs suddenly started whining and circling. His first thought was that the dogs had gotten into a scuffle, so he tried to rein his dog in. Both dogs started howling, tugging, and eventually wiggled free of their leashes and bolted away. Then my neighbor noticed the birds. Everything that could fly had taken to manic flight. Birds everywhere, up and away. He was trying to chase down his dog when he felt a feeling of nausea. He described it as feeling similar to the first time on a fishing boat, kind of a low rolling, dizzy feeling that turns your guts. And then bam, it hit. The ground started heaving and he veered off the path like a drunken sprinter. He ended up dolphin diving into the grass and spent much of the next five to 10 minutes or so lying in that spot. Not by choice, of course. He tried to get back up on his feet, but he described the experience as feeling like a two-year-old trying to stand up on a trampoline full of older kids. All he could do is lay there, vomit, and watch the city of Portland crumble, just crumble around him. The next three months were a nightmare for my neighbor. I'm seeking permission to have him tell his story on a future recording, and I hope we can make that happen. Anyway, the long overdue quake finally happened it was a 9.2 on the Richter scale, 100 miles or so off the coast of Oregon and Washington. The rupture itself was roughly 600 miles long and the, the initial event lasted somewhere in the neighborhood of six minutes. The major cities of Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland were effectively destroyed. Most older and taller buildings crumbled or were shaken from their foundations. Many newer buildings managed to remain somewhat upright, but were not in, they, they simply weren't engineered to withstand a 9.2 event. And what the earthquake didn't destroy, the fires and floods did. The infrastructure of these cities was knocked out as well. Water and gas mains, underground cables, mobile communication towers, all were ruptured, severed, or knocked offline. Roads, bridges, and tunnels were wiped out as well. Each of the three large metropolitan areas in the Northwest have large number of bridges, all of which were destroyed, severely damaged, or blocked by the earthquake. 
Damaged bridges were a huge obstacle if you lived in Vancouver proper, um, British Columbia. The city is surrounded by water and getting in and out of the city required at least one bridge crossing. Evacuating Vancouver for most people involved getting wet, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. In Seattle and Portland, the bridge outages were painful but were considered to be salt in the wound rather than the wound itself. The earthquake happened late in the afternoon, right at rush hour. So main arteries like Interstates 5, 205, 405, 84, 90, routes like that were clogged with wrecked and parked vehicles. Miles and miles of stranded cars and motorists. If you do any sort of rush hour commuting, you'll probably understand that a fender bender can quickly add 30 minutes or more to your journey. Now imagine the chaos that a 9.2 earthquake would cause in rush hour. This isn't the type of situation that that's just going to clear out in a few minutes. Some of those automobiles remained where they stopped or crashed for the next nine months. Obviously that was a big problem and that's why I recommended earlier that you get in shape and buy some sturdy shoes and outdoor wear. You're going to have a long walk west through and over the twisted cars, over more slippery mud, rock, and sagebrush that you can imagine. And let me tell you why you'll have to walk. There aren't enough relief workers in the world who can handle roughly 10 million refugees. The cities in the Northwest can no longer sustain life. Clean water supplies were exhausted within days. The food and medical supplies that weren't destroyed by the quake and fires were hoarded and fought over. So unless you wanted to live and fight like a barbarian, you went West where you heard or assumed resources and relief could be found. I'll get back to the subject of seeking refuge here in a minute, uh, getting a bit ahead of myself and want to talk more about the immediate effects of the disaster. So let's talk about the tsunamis and landslides. Uh, there's a video that some guy put on YouTube. Uh, he's at Cape Perpetua in Oregon with his family. The first couple of minutes he's filming his family doing typical family things. They're checking out the view of the ocean and walking the dirt path around the viewing area when the shaking starts. He keeps the recording rolling throughout the entire duration of the quake. Uh, again, maybe six minutes or so. He seems like he's having a similar experience as my neighbor had in Portland. Um, you know, the two-year-old on a crowded trampoline type of thing. Long minutes of cursing, puking, crying. The dude's trying to locate members of his family and manages to pull them all together into a big dog pile in the middle of a dirt path. One of his daughters has a huge gash on the right side of her face. She probably fell on a rock or into a tree branch or something. Now I've watched this video dozens of times. It's fascinating to me for so many reasons. One of them being that it wasn't posted for nearly a, a year after the disaster. And I'd love to know how that guy made it out of that mess. But mainly this video shows how powerful, brave, and determined people can be in the face of unimaginable terror. This guy is getting knocked around. I'm sure he's scared shitless, but he's successful in locating his family members and attempts to calm them. When the shaking stops, he makes a remark to his youngest daughter that he doesn't want to go on that ride again. Uh, there's some nervous chuckles. It seems to lighten the mood. They're relieved to be okay, but the camera is still shaky. Uh, you can tell there's a lot of adrenaline there. A child that's outside of the frame remarks that they were lucky not to have been standing on the edge of the viewing area. Wailing and screaming can be heard and the father suggests that they should go check on the other group. 
Then the camera goes blank. Uh, the father has stopped recording. A second later, the picture returns. It's a view of the ocean framed by steep green mountains leading directly into the ocean. There's a chorus of loud wailing sirens. The camera pans over to the mother and daughter. The daughter's dabbing her face with a bloody t-shirt. And then the camera returns to the mountain ocean scene. The father says something like, look at the water going out. Look, look how far it's being sucked out. You couldn't see those rocks before. And the daughter comments, yeah, I think you're right. How long until the wave comes? I don't know, this is my first earthquake. I'm not really sure how this works, but I'm pretty sure we wanna be up here and not down there. An extended arm appears at the bottom of the frame, uh, pointing at the coastal road below. They watch the ocean recede for several minutes, commenting on previously unseen features and bantering about their experience. Several landslides can be seen on the coastal road below and the father zooms in on an overturned pickup truck. He mutters something like, I hope they got out and are heading uphill. A crackly teenage voice chimes in, hey, out there, that white line. The father zooms back out and shifts the view out to sea. A faint white line can be seen on the horizon. Is that the tidal wave, says the younger voice? It's not a tidal wave, idiot. It's a tsunami. The father chimes in and says, yeah, that might be it. Now, Cape Perpetua is eight or 900 feet above sea level. If I had to be anywhere on the Oregon coast during a, a tsunami, this would probably be the best that you could wish for. But the next five minutes of that video are absolutely terrifying. The white line gets bigger and closer, then it gets taller. It's a wall of water barreling straight towards the coast. The father backs away from the viewing area, seeking safety further away from the edge of the mountain. He captures the wall of water washing over the coastal road and slamming into the mountain above it. The camera shakes and the ground rumbles. The water proceeds east, turning black as it picks up the rich coastal soil and everything growing in it. Huge fragmented Sitka spruce trees are plucked out of the ground and roll in the churn. The water just keeps coming. Then the father suddenly comes to his senses. He yells, yells at his crackly voiced teenage son, tells him to get to the car, grab anything that can hold water, and fill it up in the restroom tap. Then the feed goes dark for good. This family was extremely lucky. If they had chosen to stop for a late lunch in Yahats, the nearest town, they would not have survived. Rugged coastal mountains along the Oregon and Washington coasts restrict east-west travel to a few dozen main routes. These are mostly two-lane roads that run alongside rivers that run from the mountains into the sea. There simply would not have been enough time for them to jump in the car, find a route east, a route east, and get enough elevation to avoid the tsunami. And that's how it played out that day for nearly 200,000 people along the coasts of California, Washington, Oregon, British Columbia. They simply did not have enough time to get out of the way. The before and after satellite images were sobering. Low-lying areas were reduced to brown junkyards, mud flats filled with debris. Crescent City, Newport, Lincoln City, places like that were completely wiped off the map. In Tillamook, the water made it about 10 miles inland. In terms of lives lost, Oregon was the hardest hit. The beautiful Oregon coast was full of small towns built on or near mouths of rivers or other low-lying areas. Those small towns were within a couple hours drive of bigger cities like Portland, Salem, Eugene, and were popular tourist destinations.
Coastlines of Washington and British Columbia were also hit hard, but their coastal areas were comparatively less populated and congested. Cities of those areas seemed to have more success getting high and dry than their neighbors in Oregon. Washington and BC had other problems though. Places like Seattle, Victoria, Vancouver didn't get hit directly with a big wall of water, but they got wet. A large amount of water was pushed through the Juan de Fuca Strait, and portions of those earthquake-damaged cities were marinated in up to 10 feet of water. When the water receded, it took all kinds of debris with it, and that caused some serious problems with the relief and rescue efforts. The Puget Sound and the mouth of the Columbia River were minefields of wreckage and debris. It was hard to navigate anything larger than a seal zodiac boat without running into trouble in those waters. And believe me, they tried. Many hulls and propellers were damaged, and those disabled watercraft compounded the problems even further. In Vancouver's case, the San Juan, San Juan Islands created a natural choke point for marine debris, and that created problems for relief and evacuation efforts. Further complications were caused by the fact that the earthquake had modified the geography in the area. Obstacles that weren't there previously popped up and established shipping lanes, and it took time to identify passable routes. This is what made the bridge outages in Vancouver so critical. Relief wasn't coming quickly by sea and it wasn't coming by land. Runways in the areas were severely damaged, so the only aircraft capable of landing safely were helicopters and VTOLs. The Canadian government didn't have many of either, but they provided what they could, and owners of private helicopters also stepped in, but it wasn't enough. The U.S. couldn't help. They were obviously trying to sort out their own 50,000 square mile disaster zone. I'll talk more about Canada in a minute, but I'll leave it at this. If you're living in Vancouver or Victoria or any urban coastal area in southwestern BC, consider moving east, especially if you're unable to walk, swim, fight, or hunt. And that holds true for those living in Washington and Oregon as well. The U.S. government has more equipment and resources to aid in evacuations, but certainly not enough to deal with 9 million or so homeless people. So let me reset the stage for what's going on in the U.S. Five or 600 miles of coastline have turned into a muddy stripe. The major population centers in two states look like they've been plowed under by a rototiller. Communication is down and travel by sea, air, and land is difficult to impossible. Which reminds me, beyond the tsunami, I haven't talked about the earthquakes, other secondary disasters. Let's talk about landslides and fires. The earthquake and its aftershocks set off a number of landslides. The initial earthquake triggered a very large landslide near Collins Point on the Columbia River, which is about 50 miles east of Portland. There had been a large landslide in that area in the past, so there's apparently a history of instability in that area. Anyway, uh, a large wedge of land slid into the Columbia River and that created some serious complications that made an already desperate situation much worse. The landslide outright covered about a quarter mile of I-84, which is the major east-west artery connecting Oregon with the rest of the country. That obviously complicated the relief and evacuation efforts, but the landslide also dammed up the Columbia River temporarily. Water backed up and caused flooding in places like Hood River, White Salmon, The Dalles. Immediate loss of life from the landslide and flooding were comparatively small, but many of these areas saw their water supplies and infrastructure 
which were already shaken up by the earthquake, finished off by the flooding. Suffice it to say that the lack of power, natural gas, and clean drinking water caused a lot of problems in the months to follow. One bright spot, a well-known entrepreneur helped mitigate some of the damage caused by these landslides. This individual, who is a pioneer in electric cars and commercial space technology, also ran a business that specialized in digging tunnels. My handlers won't allow me to mention his name, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, this individual at his own expense transported several of his boring machines to the Northwest. Four of them were put to work on the Collins Point slide and within a period of about two months, working through numerous aftershocks and unstable earth, managed to bore a series of reinforced tunnels through the slide. It was an amazing and dangerous operation. 56 workers lost their lives during that two month period, 13 in a single tunnel collapse event, but clearing the gorge saved countless lives and millions of acres of property. I could spend hours talking about all the calamities caused by the earthquake and aftershocks. Let's just say that between the earthquake, tsunami, aftershocks, the landslides, the fires, the floods, the loss of electricity, communications, warmth, clean water, food, those who survived the initial catastrophe were facing some very difficult challenges. And for the most part, they were on their own. I mentioned earlier that I'm trying to obtain approval for my neighbor to talk about his journey out of Portland. I would love you to hear that story, but I'm at the mercy of our analysts here. So here's a generic recap of the journey a typical earthquake refugee took. In the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, people were paralyzed and stunned. 15 minutes earlier, they'd been going about their everyday lives, sending emails, sitting in meetings, or changing the laundry. Now they're staring at a pile of rubble that used to be their home or office. Maybe they're staring at twisted metal on the highway or the remains of a coworker sticking out from the wreckage. From all accounts, the first few minutes after the disaster is a surreal experience. How do you process the end of the world as you know it? Some people are wandering aimlessly. Others are frantically searching the rubble and trying helplessly to, to contact loved ones. Injured people are everywhere begging for help. Sirens blare and some citizens shake free from the initial shock and begin, begin to assist the first responders in tending to the trapped and the injured. Others carry looted items from stores. The desire to get home is also strong. Communications are down and everyone wants to check on their loved ones. The streets, already damaged and cluttered with wreckage, become more congested as people attempted to flee. Whether it be from panic or anxiety, adrenaline is pumping and poor decisions are made. My neighbor remembers some guy carjacking a teenage girl who was being just a little too deliberate, avoiding wreckage on a street. The guy came out of nowhere, yanked the girl out of her car and threw her to the street. He floored the small sedan, took a corner too fast, hit some debris in the street and rolled the car into a group of pedestrians. My neighbor calls that the first of a hundred memories that haunt him at night. So I'm getting a bit too specific here, back to the general experience. It took most people a day or so to reunite with their loved ones or what was left of their loved ones. For those working a traditional job, that meant walking home. If you have a 20 or 30 mile commute, imagine walking that route home. Now imagine walking that route filled with wrecked cars and dead, injured, and desperate people. Everyone is begging for help. Normally, you're a compassionate human being. 
You'd never dream of walking past an injured child, but a typical resident of the Northwest will do that many times in the next few months. Once you arrive home, your loved ones may or may not be there. Maybe they sought refuge with another friend or family member. Maybe they're under the rubble or part of the ashes that used to be your house. That takes some time to sort out. And you're exhausted, dehydrated, hungry, and terrified. This will be the theme of your life for the next several months. So you finally reunite with what's left of your family. By this time, you're aware of the scale of disaster. Word is filtered down that the entire Northwest is in shambles. If you're in Portland or Vancouver, you can't seek refuge in Seattle and vice versa. You need to make a decision. Are you going to sit tight and wait for help? Or are you gonna move east where there's presumably resources and relief? As it turns out, both decisions bring equal misery. If you decided to stay, you spent your time searching for and defending precious supplies of the basics needed for survival, food, water, shelter, warm clothing. Within hours of the disaster, military and National Guard relief efforts kicked in. But as I mentioned earlier, roads and runways were badly damaged and, uh, damaged and obstructed. Supplies and relief workers have to be delivered by helicopters or dropped by aircraft. And how many doctors and nurses do you think have parachute skills? Many that came in didn't have those skills, but they took a risk. They were heroic, but there simply weren't enough of them to deal with the volume and scale of the disaster. Supply drops were initially chaotic. Crowds of people tracked the parachutes and uh, many riots and even gunfights broke out wherever they landed. The government quickly shifted tactics and delivered drops to armed squads of soldiers who would protect the supplies and conduct orderly distribution. That's how it was supposed to go, but the military was spread thin and it became difficult and dangerous for small squads to maintain order when hundreds of people showed up. If you chose to remain in one of the larger metropolitan areas, you'd like, likely be spending about three weeks bartering or fighting with your neighbors for life's basics. Then as the relief effort matured, you'd be herded into one of the many relief camps while you waited a month or two for relocation. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And I don't mean to gloss over this, but if you want an analog for the experience in the relief for relocation camps, study up on life in a Syrian refugee camp. Now for the other option, let's say you are uncomfortable fighting your neighbors or selling your body for a bottle of water. Your only option is to get out of town and head east. This is an equally dangerous and miserable choice. There are no clear roads, bridges are out, there are landslides, fires, floods, and fellow travelers to deal with. You'll be walking over mountains, through sagebrush-filled deserts, and desperate people will be trying to separate you from any supplies you might have. The people who live in the areas you pass through won't be much help either. Just as you stepped over injured children on your journey, they'll have to step over you. You probably won't be the first urban refugees to pass through the area, and chances are, the people who went before you behaved like a swarm of hungry locusts, already bleeding these small towns and farms of everything they have. By the time you arrive, your welcome will already have run out. Or there might not be anybody in town at all. Many people living in the small inland towns of the Northwest were forced to flee east as well. Unable to obtain supplies themselves and wary of the hordes coming their way, they also headed inland. Now, I hate to make it sound like all humanity disappeared after this disaster. There were countless acts of kindness 
and people did what they could, but nobody had enough in the tank to deal with a catastrophe that displaced tens of millions of people. Regardless of whether you chose to stick close to home or set out walking, if you didn't have friends or relatives that could host you in other parts of the country, you likely ended up in one of several government relocation facilities. If you're Canadian, government facilities were set up outside the cities of Calgary and Lethbridge in southern Alberta. The government trucked in thousands of 20 and 40 foot ocean containers, which served as rudimentary shelters for individual families. Being adjacent to Canada's grain belt, food and water were relatively plentiful, but winters on the southern Alberta prairie are harsh, and living in a poorly lit, drafty ocean container, the Canadian refugees certainly felt it. If you're a U.S. citizen, relocation facilities were set up in uh, Spokane, Washington, near Boise, Idaho, in Winnemucca, Nevada, and just outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. At the time of the disaster, I was working and living in the Salt Lake City area. We felt the earthquake in Utah. Again, it was a kind of a slow, sickening, rolling sensation that reminded me of a deep fishing trip I had taken as a kid. Anyway, over the next few days, as we got details on the scale and severity of the disaster, the first reaction of many people was, how can we help? Many people were concerned for relatives and friends living in the area, or were just generally concerned and piled in trucks and vans and headed toward the disaster zone. The majority of these Good Samaritans were turned away at some point in their journey. Law enforcement and military made the decision to close roads to private traffic in the interest of keeping them clear for government relief and evacuation efforts, and that caused a lot of conflict. Imagine being a father worried about tracking down your daughter living in the Northwest. They won't even let you set foot in the states of Oregon and Washington. And as the days go by and more news of the desperate situation leaks out, um, you finally reach your limit. Uh, there were skirmishes between the military and private citizens on pretty much every major road leading into Washington and Oregon. Major confrontations occurred near Coeur d'Alene, Idaho and Denio Junction, Nevada. Coeur d'Alene was the most severe uh, a number of local militia groups and private citizens had gathered in the parking lot of a large sporting goods store on the border of Idaho and Washington. A subset of these groups had raided the store previously and stripped its inventory of firearms and am ammunition. Several thousand people sat in the parking lot preparing to overrun the blockades set up on Interstate 90. A military helicopter hovered over the parking lot and warned the crowd via loudspeaker not to move toward the border. Some idiot in the parking lot had a rifle-mounted grenade launcher and took down the helicopter. That kicked off a firefight between the militia members on one side of the Spokane River and the military on the other. 80 people were killed and more than 300 were injured. Events like that obviously make things more difficult for a government trying to manage a large disaster area. Now you have to defend the fact that your military is acting against its own citizens and of course the government reacted in the per the worst possible way. They took the hard line. They expanded the emergency declaration to include states bordering the disaster zone and started reinforcing borders, limiting movement, and instituting curfew. The sale of firearms and ammunition were suspended throughout the entire United States. Far right-wing groups were already on edge before the disaster. 
Following Coeur d'Alene, many thousands of these individuals hit the road to take back the Northwest. All the rhetoric they'd been fed had seemingly come true, and now they were foaming at the mouth. Any attempt to impede their journeys north and west was met by violence. But I'm getting a little bit off topic. Let's get back to the people evacuating the Northwest. Whether you made the long walk or were evacuated by the government, you eventually ended up in a temporary relocation facility. Now I'll talk about the facilities near Salt Lake City because I visited and volunteered at that location. First of all, the citizens of places like Spokane, Boise, and Salt Lake City were very good about sheltering refugees where they could. Families moved in with families. Businesses made honest attempts to hire those healthy or skilled enough to work. As a few months went by and the economy absorbed the shock of the disaster, private placement of these refugees became more difficult. In the case of Salt Lake City, a relocation facility was set up near Grantsville, which is about 30 or 40 miles west of Salt Lake City. It was located at the site of an old army depot, and hundreds of earth-covered bunkers were hastily converted to multifamily living spaces. The bunkers were about 30 yards long and 15 to 20 yards wide. Each bunker initially housed about six families or 30 people. That number grew to about 50 people per bunker the following summer. Uh, more about that in a minute. At the time, my dad was pretty concerned about this arrangement. He understood that those bunkers held some pretty nasty stuff in their time. Things like mustard gas, chlorine, asbestos, anthrax, artillery shells, and other relics of early 20th century wars. The government assured everyone that those spaces had been sanitized, but I remember my dad grumbling, grumbling about that quite a bit, and he ended up being right. The government had cleared out the bunkers years earlier, but they had by no means been sanitized. People came down with all kinds of sicknesses from the hantavirus to asbestos-related cancers, but liability for sicknesses could not be pinned down on the government because most people had been exposed to hazardous conditions for months before they arrived at the relocation facility. Now, the work I did as a volunteer mostly involved installing and maintaining wireless internet services on these bunker facilities. I was amazed at the number of people who had managed to bring their phones, laptops, and other electronic gadgets with them on the long journey. A lot of donated electronic goods came in as well, and people in those relocation facilities were able to communicate with loved ones, entertain themselves, and even resume working. Technology was a blessing and a curse for these Northwest refugees. Some chose to communicate and organize in ways that benefited the new community. Others abused technology to set up illicit operations and exploit their neighbors. By springtime, roughly six months after the disaster, there were already healthy black markets for alcohol, opiates, and meth. Authorities also busted one group who had turned in an uninhabitable bunker into a marijuana grow house. By late spring, the economy finally started to reflect the true scale of the tragedy. Predictably, the stock market suffered during the first few weeks after the tragedy. Then stocks rebounded as Wall Street anticipated new opportunities arising from building the Northwest. But people that held real money were spooked by the scale of the destruction, the images of refugees hiking the highways, and the civil unrest occurring on the borders of Oregon, Washington, and California. That gave them uh, some pause. Everybody went into wait-and-see mode, and the government and banks couldn't print enough money to keep the economy afloat. 
Stocks crashed. Nobody wanted to buy or issue bonds. People cashed out or bought gold and cryptocurrencies. By summertime, employers throughout the United States and Canada started laying people off. By August, unemployment reached about 12% in the United States. By then, relocation centers were packed to the brim with refugees, unable to find work or housing. The facility where I volunteered now housed more than 120,000 people, which was about double what the 900 or so bunkers could reasonably shelter. People that couldn't fit in bunkers or the weak who were forcibly expelled by thugs constructed makeshift shelters and tents between the bunkers. As the relocation facilities became more cramped, it became more difficult to deliver the necessities, food, clean water, sanitation. With conditions worsening throughout the United States, state governments tended to give their own citizens priority over the refugees. In the case of our facility in Utah, the Mormon church did an admirable job maintaining food and water deliveries, but they weren't equipped to deal with the sanitation issues or enforce orderly distribution of supplies. As conditions became more desperate, the church would deliver goods to the gate of the facility, but concern for the safety of their volunteers would go no further. Distribution was left to federal and state agencies who were unable to distribute those resources fairly. Conditions in the relocation camps were miserable. The strong got fed and the weak were starved and exploited. As the economy worsened, so did conditions in the rest of the United States. Unemployment caused unrest, and that unrest was managed with the same heavy-handed zero-tolerance policies that were used against the militia members in Coeur d'Alene and Spokane. So over the months, as things got worse, and in the rest of the U.S., refugees in the Northwest were given lip service, and that's about it. The politicians used their situation as a wedge issue to divide people and serve their purposes. And I'll go in a bit deeper into this situation in my next recording, so I'll just stop there. But I want to end my summary of this terrible disaster with a personal note. I, uh, I lost a sister and two nephews to this disaster in Southern Oregon. Sorry. When the earthquake happened, she was heading north toward Eugene. They found her car undamaged on the shoulder of the highway. The children had been removed from their car seats and they presumably left on foot. No bodies were ever found. No evidence of foul play. They simply disappeared like near, nearly a million other people on that day. My brother-in-law survived. He, he made the long walk across Oregon through the Great Basin and eventually to our family in Salt Lake City. I'll ask him to tell his story, but like many other Cascadia survivors, he fell victim to the Grom epidemic. I'll talk about that in the next recording. If you're living in the Northwest, you need to start preparing now. Your time is different from my time. Sorry. Your disaster could happen in 100 years or it could happen 10 minutes from now. If relocating is not an option, one I'd recommend, especially if you're elderly or disabled, get fit, become comfortable in the outdoors, and take earthquake and tsunami preparation seriously. You live in a spectacular area of the world, but it will all change in an instant. And those politicians that you spend so much time loving and hating, they have their own rear ends to worry about. You're on your own. Please make decisions that preserve your ability to continue making decisions.